Podcast with your host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing and consulting firm for behavioral health. Today, we have Sam Klinger on the show. She is the Director of Continuous Improvement for Rogers Behavioral Health, and she has absolutely fascinating insights into a really, really complex but amazing continuous improvement process, very similar to Lean or Six Sigma for not just improving clinical outcomes, but improving outcomes across the entire organization. Before we talk to her, I, of course, want to hear from our wonderful sponsors, Soberlink. Professionals like those that listen to the Recovery Executive Podcast know that technology-assisted care is improving all aspects of healthcare. Addiction treatment is no different. Soberlink is an accountability tool that's helped thousands of people in early recovery. If you haven't heard of Soberlink, it's a discrete alcohol monitoring system with real-time results and reports. You can improve your client's outcomes with the latest technology recommended by four out of five treatment providers. For a limited time and for Recovery Executive Podcast listeners, you can get a free Soberlink device by visiting www.soberlink.com free. More and more, my personal focus and the focus here at Circle Social is data accurate data, validated data, clean data, and using that data to improve performance, to improve outcomes. We've done this for a long, long time within the marketing space, creating the benchmarks for what works and what doesn't work across various channels. We have built that into call centers, into business development, and even into financial metrics and clinical performance. So I have this continued fascination as we grow out the business in that direction about helping providers really understand their own data, what data they need to know, because it's data identification. It can be just as challenging as data validation sometimes. And this process of continuous improvement. So when I heard about what Rogers Behavioral Health has been doing for the past four years, I had to talk to them. And as I got deeper and deeper into understanding their process and what they've been doing the past couple of years, I, I grew more for, more and more fascinated and I knew I had to have them on the show. So Sam will walk us through Rogers Behavioral is doing to improve their clinical outcomes, to improve their intake and admissions, to improve their human resources and their culture. And everything they do is around this really data-informed process, but also a process of rapid iteration to make sure that they are focused and improving constantly, month over month, year over year. And the process is quite complex. So you'll hear Sam use a lot of different terms that you may be familiar with if you're familiar with Six Sigma or Lean methodologies. We will slowly unpack all of these terms and unpack these processes to help you understand what Rogers is doing that's making them so successful. And this success has translated to not just cost reductions and savings, but improved patient outcomes, improved relationships with the payers. And so there's a lot of really, really clear and strong benefit to what they're doing that I'm hoping everyone here listening today is going to be able to eventually incorporate into their own programs. So with that, let's get into the conversation with Sam. Hey, Sam, really appreciate you coming on the show here today. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and uh, Rogers Behavioral Health? Hi, thank you for having me. Um, So I have been in the behavioral health space for a little over 13 years. I started my career as a social worker working on our inpatient units and then on our um, dual diagnosis partial programs. And so those are outpatient programs. And from there, I moved into leadership and had the opportunity to come into the continuous improvement space. So that's a little bit about me. Rogers is a freestanding behavioral health facility. We were founded in 1907 and we're headquartered in southeast Wisconsin. We are one of the nation's largest private, unaffiliated, non-for-profit psychiatric and addiction treatment providers. And we have 18 locations across eight states. We have an evidence-based care model 
that includes multidisciplinary teams, psychiatrists, general medical physicians, psychologists, and other mental health clinicians. And we offer a continuum of care, and that includes inpatient hospitalization, residential care, partial hospitalization, and intensive outpatient programs. But more, more importantly, our mission is to provide highly effective mental health and addiction treatment that helps people reach their full potential for health and well-being. Appreciate the intro there. So on this show, we talk a lot about data, systems, processes, especially around outcomes and tracking. And more and more, we're looking at that from a clinical perspective. How do we actually make sure that what we're doing is effective for the patients and that internally we're constantly improving our processes? So at Rogers, you guys have a very unique process called the Rogers Operating System. And it's focused on this continuing improvement process. Can you tell us a bit about that and, and give us some history and context about how it was created and how it's continued to operate? Yeah, absolutely. So the Rogers operating system was started at Rogers in 2016. And at that point in time, we had engaged a company called Simpler Consulting. And they really have been there from the start and and still with us today to support us on our improvement initiatives. And so what we really started to see was that we would say that we were data rich But we didn't really know how to use that data, and we didn't have good systems in place to make improvements. So we embarked on what most people would call their lean journey. And so we implemented the system, and we talk about it from a four-pronged approach. That four-pronged approach is really around vision and strategy, what we call value stream improvement, daily management improvement, and then having an architecture and infrastructure to be able to deliver that on a daily basis. And so when we look at the vision and strategy, we have a document that we call our TPOC. So that's our transformational plan of care. And being a previous clinician, I always joke that it's really our treatment plan for the hospital system. And then our value stream improvement is really designed to be some of those larger systemic challenges that we haven't really been able to shake loose on. And so this is where, if you're familiar with Lean, where we would be doing rapid improvement events or week-long workshops within the context of a specific problem category to drive improvement. And so that's really about breakthrough change. Then we have our daily management, which is really about how do we run the business and improve the business on a daily basis. And so that includes what we call the tiered huddle approach. So each unit has a huddle that is all the team members from that unit. And they're talking about what are our challenges that we're facing today and how are we going to solve for those problems. But they're also talking about how we can improve on a larger scale as well. And the tiered approach to that is whatever that unit-based huddle can't solve for independently comes to a manager level huddle or a director level huddle and can get all the way up to our CEO for problem solving on a daily basis. And so so really it's, again, when you think about it, it's executing the strategy of the system from breakthrough change, daily change, and having the right infrastructure to do so. Okay, so there's a lot of lingo in there for people that are unfamiliar with kind of lean and Six Sigma style processes. And there's also a lot of moving pieces, right? You mentioned a lot of different things in there, like huddles and value streams. So looking at it from a really kind of high perspective, let's start with the outcomes that you guys are trying to work for. So maybe these are part of your value streams, right? Like what are the main areas that you're focusing on within this system? Yeah, certainly. And so When we embarked on our journey, Simpler brought in kind of what you would consider the classic true north metrics, so ways that you can start to measure success. And those were broken out into five different domains, which is human development, essentially how are we engaging the people that are doing the work, quality, and I think that speaks for itself, um, timeliness and delivery, so are we able to meet the patient demand and are we able to deliver that when they're looking for it? So this is where we talk a lot about access to care. 
costs. So are we financially sustainable? And then growth. And so we have, we joke that we Rogerized the True North (laughs) metrics so that they linked to what our strategic priorities are. And so human development became healthy culture. So there's a lot of conversations in the behavioral health world about compassion, resiliency, compassion, fatigue. So how do we drive a healthy culture so that our staff stay healthy enough to treat our patients? Then from a quality perspective, we adjusted that to clinical effectiveness. So that is really our measurement of are our patients getting better on a daily basis. And then timely delivery, we adjusted to patient experience. So we use press gaining as our measurement tool for that. And we're really looking at are patients going to recommend our care and did they feel like they got better? And then cost, again, we just look at it from a sustainability standpoint. And then lastly, capacity and growth. We look at that from a community outreach. So are we able to share Rogers with our larger communities and, and have access to care in the areas that is, that's necessary? Okay, so I want to take one of these examples and maybe try and give something um, specific or, or concrete around those. So you talked about timeliness for delivery of care and access to care. And I don't know if you've done a, a process around these yet specifically, but you know, maybe using one of those examples like access to care or the speed for, at which you know someone originally contacts Rogers and then is able to get in for treatment. You know, Can you kind of walk us through that or, or something similar in terms of the improvements that you saw? using this method and then how you did that? Absolutely. And so so timeliness and delivery um, certainly is a great example. And so if we come into the earlier discussion about value stream improvement, we embarked on a value stream that we called the intake and transitions value stream. So this was really looking at that initial access point to care for patients, as well as once a patient has completed one level of treatment, how are they moving throughout our system to other levels or of care or other types of treatment? And so we, when we do a value stream or start a value stream, we start with something called a value stream analysis, which is a week-long activity that breaks down what are all the problems that are happening in that specific process. So for this instance, it was the moment a patient contacted us to the moment that they stepped onto the unit. And so we look at all of those processes, we see where our gaps or our problems are, and then we start to decide where are the really critical ones to start working on for that next 12 month period. And so for the intake and transitions value stream, this was actually our very first value stream that we worked on. And we have now had four passes at that value stream. So what that means is every 12 months, we're doing that same thing to see, are we still on track? Where do we still need to do work and how do we move forward? And so from a vision and strategy standpoint, we were recognizing that it was just taking way too long for our patients to access care. And so we set out on a a slew of initiatives. So again, this is 12 months. So each month we would have a week-long rapid improvement event that was focused on a specific topic. And so within this value stream, one of the topics that they worked on was ER transfers. And so by doing that rapid improvement event, we were we set a goal, and so this comes to kind of metrics driving the change. We set a metric goal of having 50% of ER transfers happening within 15 minutes. So the minute ER calls us to the minute we're able to say yes or to decline that patient, which was certainly not a goal. We didn't want to decline patients, but every once in a while there is a patient that isn't a good fit for our facility. And so at the so then after that, that week-long event, we actually monitor that process for 90 days to ensure that the process is working and that it's stable and that it's hitting those goals. And so for the example of the ER transfers event, we started that event with 2.3% 
of ER transfers happening within 15 minutes. At the end of that 90-day period, we had 76% of ER transfers happening within that 15-minute mark. Wow. And so, so, yeah, it's really exciting. And so the other component of that is we talk about values and philosophies, and one of our values is to never, never settle. Um, we can always get better. We call it continuous improvement. And so we're actually going to be reembarking on that, trying to get it down to 10 minutes. That's fantastic. So looking at, you guys started with intake and admissions, for example. Now, who is on or who is in these week-long meetings? Who's invited to these? Yeah, so, so I should probably talk about it from two different aspects. So each value stream, and right now at Rogers, we currently have eight value streams. So intake and transitions is one of them. Each of them has a one-hour meeting once a week. We call it a steering team. And the whole job of the steering team is to make sure all of these rapid improvement events are on track and that they're meeting their goals. And if they're not meeting their goals, understanding why that's occurring and digging into those problems and, and creating what we call countermeasures to them. And so, so that team, when we are in the prep phase for this week-long event, so we do a 12-week prep phase, and then again, that 12-week, that 90-day post phase. In that prep phase, we are doing a, a tool. So this is where it kind of maybe lends a little bit to the Lean Six Sigma. We do a tool called a SIPOC which stands for Supplier Input Process Output Customer. And we do a high-level view of what that process is, and we identify who the suppliers and the customers are. That drives our team. So what we don't want to have happen is that we just pick people that maybe really like to do this work, so they want to be on everything, or we don't include our customers, or we don't include our suppliers or our process experts. So we try to build those teams to be one-third suppliers, one-third customers, and then we add something that we call fresh eyes. So this is somebody who doesn't know anything about the process. They're really there to be the, help me understand that. I don't get why we do it that way so that they can challenge current assumptions. And so those teams end up being about six to nine individuals across the organization. We have included patients on events before and outpatient providers who aren't part of Rogers so that they can help us understand what their needs are. Okay, so you have all these people coming in from different areas that are going to be able to support you in improving the process. Who's reaching out and choosing those people? Is that your role? Is that someone else's role? Yeah, so for each rapid improvement event that we have, we have two leadership positions within that event. One is called our process owner. And so we joke about not overthinking our process owners because it's literally whoever the person is that owns that process. So, for instance, in admissions, that might be one of our admissions managers. And then we have something called a team lead. And so the team lead and the process owner are responsible for reaching out to those individuals and inviting them to the events. Okay. So you've got the team assembled. And then when you go in, do you already have the problems identified? Or is that what you're doing in those initial week-long meetings is actually looking for what are the priority problems? Yeah, so I would say it's a little bit of both. So in that 12-week process of preparation, we are trying to make the problems visual. So this is where we're gathering data and facts around the problem. And as you start to embark in making that visual, you, you already naturally start to see where some of the problem areas in the process are. But we try very, very hard not to solve for the problem until we get into the event because that is the event team's job. Okay. And so let's take this example of trying to improve the emergency ER response times in terms of how fast you guys can do in the under 15 minute window. You know, I'm sure there's lots of different things that contribute to that number originally being low, right? So do you Mm -hmm. have a limit on the number of problems you're trying to address in a specific event or how do you kind of structure and define that? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that's a great question because we talk a lot about if you're trying to solve for everything, you're solving for nothing. 
um, because you just can't do it. Your, your attention will be too scattered. And so, and again, this is kind of where some of that Lean Six Sigma piece comes in. So we will do a formal gap analysis. We, we often don't use a fishbone, but we will use a process that's very similar to it in terms of categorizing what some of those problems areas are. And then we have metrics that are defining success for this event. So we're going to bounce those problems to the metrics to be able to say, if we solve for this problem, will it help us meet our goals? And that'll help us narrow down which problems we're going to work on. We, we will talk about taking forward no more than three to eight problems, but sometimes the problems are so interweaved or some of them are really simplistic to solve that we will pull forward more. And so that's mm-hmm. kind of where the ongoing learning of our transformation team is really important and critical because they'll make those decisions in the moment as we're in the middle of an event week. Okay. So you've got the team assembled, you've through the event week, you've identified the problems and you've also mentioned metrics or KPIs to understand if you're on track. So those are being developed in the pre-planning phase or in that initial week-long rapid improvement event. Yes. Yes. And so we use a, a document that we call an A3. And so for individuals who may not be familiar with that language. It's just a, it's a problem solving tool. And so the problem solving tool has nine boxes to it. Our box one is our reason for action or burning platform. So what's the problem that we're trying to solve? Our box two is any data around our initial state that we need to understand. And so this will include our demand in our ER transfers event that included transfer rates um, from different hospitals and per each location at Rogers. And, And so box two, again, is just what data do we need to understand to make this problem more real to us? And then box three is our target state. So we will come up with an aim statement, and that is also where we put metrics or KPIs. And and again, that's part of that 12-week process before we actually have the event. So those three boxes really get refined in that period of time. And so then our next three boxes is our gap analysis, our solutions, and our rapid experiments. Those three boxes are really what happens in the event week. Okay, so you come out of the event week and you have a plan in place, right? An action plan. And Correct. you start implementing that plan. And then you're also tracking it through the KPIs and the metrics you've established. Obviously, you know, this is where a lot of things often fall apart for a lot of organizations, right? People don't stay on track. They get sidetracked by other priorities. So what do you do or how does this process work to keep everything on track? Absolutely. So the value stream steering team, so again, that's that team that meets once a week for an hour, their responsibility is to be monitoring and tracking that. The process owner of the event is the primary owner. And so this is where our value stream improvement starts to link to our daily management system. And so I talked about having daily huddles. And so each huddle has established metrics for that huddle. This RIE that we're talking about, ER transfers, so we would actually have a metric on the admissions or intake huddle board that relates to this event. And so we're tracking it from that daily standpoint in the area of work that it's happening within, if that makes sense. Okay. And that information is then feeding through the process owner to the VSST. And so the idea behind that is that the daily management system helps us iron out those processes that really that team can fix. If there's something that's systemic or bigger that's getting in the way, that's where the value stream is there to support and remove those barriers. We also have something called an executive steering team. They meet once a week for an hour as well. And so anything that the value stream can't solve for then comes to our executive steering team. And so that's going to have our CEO, our COO, our executive directors and VPs are all part of that team. 
Actually, my next question is, how is the executive team involved in these? Are they are these uh, rapid improvement events basically operating as independent units within the value stream? Are they reporting up to the executive team? Is the executive team having any kind of influence on those decisions at all? That's a great question because it's yes to all of it. <laughs> so it's, it's really designed to be a cyclical process. And so the executives are there to set the vision and the intent. So each value stream steering team has what we call a value stream owner and an executive sponsor. So the value stream owner really holds the responsibility of the outcome of the value stream and the processes that are happening within it. The executive sponsor holds supporting setting the vision along with removing any systemic barriers. And so on a weekly basis, our executives are having these conversations and what we choose to do is informed by what our direct care providers um, or frontline staff are telling us. And so we might make an adjustment to our vision, strategy, and plan based on what our frontline staff are sharing. And then so as you move through this process, you know, we kind of talked a little bit about things getting derailed, but you guys don't actually give up on a process once it's started. So you just course correct. Can correct. you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So when we talked about boxes four, five, and six, so gap analysis, solutions, and experiments, we really take that 90-day period and see that as a continuous experiment. If something isn't working in the process, we're going to go out, observe that process and say, ooh, this is where that problem is happening. And here's what we can do to adjust that. We're going to document that on a countermeasure and then see if that countermeasure changes the tracking of the goal. So let's say our, our goal, again, was 50%. We were only meeting 20%. We put a countermeasure in place and now we're hitting 30%. And we're like, all right, awesome. That worked. Now we're going to say, what can we do next? There have been times where we've run a, pro a new process through that 90-day period and we never quite hit our goal, and that's a decision point. So sometimes what happens is, is we really encourage setting stretch goals. So, so we'll say, how far do we think we can push it? Um, and what that does is it can create what we call a red condition. So we're not hitting the goals, but we've made significant improvements. We may in that instance still say, you know what, that's great. We're going to just move forward with that process as, as the new process that we're doing. There are other times where we just really haven't been able to make movement at all. And so our belief then is that we didn't find the right gaps and the right solutions. So what we will do is we will create a new A3. So we'll go all the way back through those boxes and we might put it back into the value stream as what we would call a second pass. So we're going to take another stab at, at changing that process. But but nothing really gets just like left by the wayside. Got it. Okay. And then just kind of wrapping up the, the R discussion, I'm just kind of curious, like, what were some key areas that you ended up identifying that were super effective in you improving those numbers? Yeah. So one of the gaps that we had, uh, I'm just I'm actually, ironically, have pulled up the A3 so that I can share this with you because we do have eight value streams that have events every month. So there's a lot of information, and unfortunately, I can't remember all of it. And so, so one of the gaps that they identified was not picking up ER calls in a timely manner. So the phone's ringing and we're not answering it. And so they did what we affectionately call kind of a bat phone <laughs> so that we know that that's an ER call and we're going to answer it right away. The other thing that we noticed is that we were doing a lot of stuff in the admissions process that really didn't have to happen until the patient was on the unit. So we were able to eliminate 39 steps in the process. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. We see that we do a lot of call center consulting and we see stuff like that all the time. You'll see programs that take like a week to pe get people in or, you know, sometimes three days. And you're like, what's going on here? And they have all these systems and processes that are built for them. Right. But not for the patient. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Which I think is such is such an important piece is every time we do one of these events, we have to identify who the customer is always knowing that our patient is our ultimate customer. And so as we're looking at these processes, that's a question we ask. 
or like, is this helping our patients? Yeah, that's a great question. So you're mentioning Six Sigma and lean processes a lot in here. Uh, I'm not sure if listeners are familiar or how familiar, but can you just tell us a little bit about what are the differences between what Rogers does uh, versus Six Sigma or lean? Yeah, and so I I have to giggle just a little bit because I'm a social worker by trade. And I've only <laughs> been doing this actually for about three years. So for me, I feel like, oh, that's a great question. What is the answer? Um, <laughs> but which I think is actually really unique to Rogers because our, our consultants, we trust implicitly to teach us. But from my understanding is that we're looking at it more from a operating system, a business system versus individual tools in individual areas. So we've, we've built it with a set of values, principles, leadership behaviors, as well as the tools. And even when we talk about tools, we talk about them from the standpoint of understanding the purpose and intent of why we want to use that tool. Because I will say all the time, because we don't have a lot of engineers in behavioral health, (laughs) is don't get stuck in the tool. If this tool is not helping you, let's just think about what we're trying to do and creatively make that visual or creatively make that work for us. So I would say it's a system level approach versus individual tools in individual areas. Okay. And it is obviously, I think as everyone listening already has a sense for, it's a very intensive process, right? Lots of moving apart, parts, lots of accountability with, with a large number of people. You know, what have been some of the challenges of that as you've implemented it over time at Rogers? Oh, that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so so again, we're only on our fourth year of this journey, so we are still observing challenges. But I think initially, as we first got started, it was really a mindset shift. So we talk a lot about the adjustments that we had to make in leadership approaches and philosophies. And so we really had to embark on conversations about leaders aren't the go-to person for all problem solving, that our direct care providers, the people who are in the midst of the process, doing that process every single day are the experts in the process. And that a leadership role is really to guide the individuals in solving their own problems. And so that was one of the, the biggest challenges I think we saw early on. And, and really now at year four, I think have really worked towards making that a significant part of our, our culture. The second piece of that. I think was really around as we started to expand value streams and started to expand our daily management system was how do we build metrics that are actually meaningful and make sense? So as we were new to this, we recognized that maybe our metrics weren't very specific. So they weren't measuring the things we thought they were measuring or the data tracking was just really cumbersome and complex. So we were spending extra time tracking data, which is really the opposite of what we want to be doing. And so, so we, we figured out some systems to support that and did really targeted trainings on developing metrics and things like that. And then as we came to having eight value streams, what we started to recognize was that scope became a challenge. So what that means is what's in and out for your value stream. So some of the value streams have overlapping scopes. And so we had to do some pretty concerted efforts to bring that together so that we understood what was in, what was out, or maybe where we needed to combine efforts between two existing value streams. So you're talking a lot about data here, too. And you mentioned that Rogers was data rich before you started. Would you recommend that organizations that were maybe thinking about doing something similar, that they focus on building out the data and the metrics first? Or do you think it would be helpful to start the process to help them determine what data they need? You know, kind of a chicken or egg question there. It's totally a chicken or egg question. But if I come from a really idealistic standpoint from data tracking, we believe that the best data is the data that is closest to the work that's actually happening. And so we have 
tools that we'll use that are just, they're called one-by-one trackers or process control boards, where individual team members are actually tracking that process on like a tick sheet or they're entering it into an Excel database as the process is occurring. Um, So that's ideal state, but there are times where when you're looking at data from a systemic level, that that can get pretty unwieldy, especially if you don't have all elements of the infrastructure working perfectly. So, So we do use Power BI, if people are familiar with that, to do some of our data tracking combined with Microsoft Forms. So teams can go into a forms and enter data, and then Power BI kind of tabulates that and gives us graphs and all sorts of data. The other, the other thing that we have is a really sophisticated outcomes system that we call the ROAS, and, and I apologize, it's an acronym, and I, I cannot remember what they all stand for, but essentially patients will take a battery of assessments on admission somewhere in the middle of their treatment than then on discharge. And they're all validated assessments for whatever that patient is being treated for. So depression, there's some substance use indicators, anxiety, et cetera. And that data is all tabulated through our ROAS. And then we can start to use that to see if our, our treatment is as effective as we want it to be. Okay, so I kind of want to give a concrete example here. So maybe if we stick with the ER process. So originally to determine that those calls were taking too long, right, or those admissions processes were taking too long, it sounds like one of the first things you did was establish a special number so you knew which numbers or which phone calls were actually coming from ERs. Would that be accurate? Okay. That's correct. And so then for each of those calls that we would get, that individual team member would then enter how how long that call took. And then the process owner is kind of double checking that to make sure that those numbers are accurate and we're not misrepresenting the data essentially. Got it. So you guys put a system in place to make sure you have the accurate numbers coming in or you could track the number. And then on top of that, you had someone tagging those calls as well. So, you know, you could kind of doubly verify that they were your call that got a a time attached to it. And that's how you got your metric. Correct. And then the other way that we can do it is through our electronic health record. So there are timestamps in there of when things are done. But as much as possible, we want to get closer to the actual process because we talk about, you know, there's there's going to be human error no matter what. But the closer we can get to the actual process, the better. So it does, it can take a level of manual tracking, but then we have other systems in place that we look at as well. Okay. And I'm kind of curious because we do a lot of data analytics too. And something I see providers struggling with is just data tracking and analysis. You know, did you bring in data analysts for this or did you train, you know, clinical and other staff to create the data that you need? Yeah, so it is part of an ongoing training. So our we call our transformation team, so the team that works within the Rogers operating system, deployment leaders. And so the deployment leader's role is really to help our process owners, our team leads, our value streams to build those metrics and how they're going to track the metrics. And then as that process is unfolding, looking at the data and seeing what the data is telling us. The other, the other thing that we're really fortunate to have is we actually have a clinical outcomes team. Um, they're called clinical effectiveness. And we do have individuals there that are biostatisticians um, that are in the process of getting PhDs in analytics. So we have extra resources when we're getting stuck to say, what is this data really telling us? Okay, and then I'm just kind of curious too, further on the team end, were there any uh, struggles in that direction? You know, a lot of clinicians, to two of your points, one, they're not necessarily data-driven, they're not necessarily analytical around some of these systems and processes. And two, in my experience, sometimes frontline staff, you know, are very happy not to take a leadership role. They'd rather have the leadership manage that part for them. I'm just kind of curious what reactions you had from staff and what kind of trainings have been put in place to help facilitate this process. Yeah, so... I, one thing that we should always keep in mind that as we're doing process improvement 
if we're doing it well, it should, in theory, make staff's jobs easier. And so we we talk a lot about what it, what's in it for you. <laughs> and so I think the teams that have really been on the forefront of our value stream, so intake and transitions being one of those, they've gotten very used to tracking data and using data to make decisions. And and I mean, it can work to their favor as well. So if we are are finding that we don't have the correct staffing at certain times of the day because of call volumes, we've made adjustments in, in those areas. Interestingly enough, though, what we've been able to do is remove enough non-value added. So again, the things that aren't helping our patients um, and or helping our clinical teams who are going to be receiving that patients. We've been able to remove enough of those parts of the processes that we were able to reduce the overall FTE that's needed in our admissions department. So anyway, long story short, it's it's really about if we can figure out these processes, if we can track this data to substantiate if the process is working or not, there's benefit to you. And that benefit is that the process is working, it makes your job easier, and or it's going to substantiate that what you're telling us is accurate. So it kind of takes that emotional component out of it. Yeah, that's really good. You know, I'm always surprised at the number of, uh, the level of duplication that happens in a lot of processes. You know, we'll go in, we'll have a call center that has some kind of tracking or form for the billing team, another one for the marketing director, another one for the director of admissions, you know, and they're all really saying the same thing, but they want it in a different form. It's just, just this yeah. whole nightmare that gets built out over time. You know, the bureaucracy tends to get in the way. And and that actually reminds me when you talked about challenges with data early on, one of the biggest challenges was that we were reporting five different numbers for the exact same <laughs> metric, yep. depending on the way that you're pulling data. And so that was when our clinical effectiveness team for our really important metrics really like that. Here's how we're going to be tracking that metric. And here's where the system grabs that metric so that we were reporting on the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, that data validation is is probably one of the biggest challenges, I think, in healthcare organizations today, because you're not comparing apples to apples. People are pulling numbers from different systems. The system Correct. analyzes that number in a different way. And so when it spits it out, it's not, you know, it's not just the time of the call because it's tracked. One tracked it from the initial ring. One tracked it from when they answered. One only tracked it when it was tagged. You know, yeah, it becomes a nightmare. So overall here really good information in terms of the processes and, and it's just fascinating that you guys were able to put this all in place in such a short amount of time you know like I, said, I think it is a very very involved process what are some other just successes that you've had come out of it what are you like big ones that have really jumped out at you it was like wow this was amazing that we were able to do this yeah so i i'll i'll connect you to two so one of our value streams is is actually a clinical value stream and so that is really looking at all of our our treatment approaches and are they giving us the best outcomes. And so as we embarked in that value stream, what we ended up finding was that our clinicians were doing a really fantastic job. However, there was so much variability across the system that if you went, um, let's say, to a partial program for general mental health at our Economwalk Wisconsin Clinic versus our West Dallas Wisconsin Clinic, versus our Brown Deer Wisconsin Clinic, you were going to get different programs, even though it was labeled the same. And so we embarked on a journey of creating protocols for all of our major service lines. And what we found by implementing the first protocol, which was our inpatient protocol, was that we were able to have a larger reduction in symptomology um, pre and post, so patients were getting better, and at a at a faster rate than they had been before we reduced that variability. We also recognized that our 30-day readmission rates reduced, and so we were able to measure that from our own internal data. But we also worked with Medicare to see, because you know, then the question became, well, they're not coming back to us, but what if they went somewhere else? so that we could answer that question. And we'd also saw a really large reduction in 30-day readmission rates there. Also, our patient satisfaction increased. So when you think about the triple aim at like 
really hit on all of those pieces. And so that was, that's really exciting because I think there is, when Simpler came to us, we had some conversations about, we're going to work on processes around clinical care, what the clinical treatment teams are doing within that patient experience is really for their expertise. But Rogers is really fortunate to have national and international experts in psychology. And we started to say, well, what if we could? And so, so that brought us to our protocols, which is really exciting work. And we're in the midst of creating those for all of our service lines at all of our levels of care. What were you able to get the 30-day readmission rate down to? So the data that I have in front of me only gives a percentage. So our pre-launch for internal data was 10.75%. After the launch of the protocol, it was 6.89%, which is, uh, yeah. And then once we pulled in that Medicare data, our pre-launch was 22%. Our post-launch was 15.7%. Okay. Yeah. That sounds in line with people that have a really, really good process. That's excellent progress. With the, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. I mean, no, that's really good. You know, a lot of a lot of providers struggle to keep those readmission rates down, especially within that first 30 day and the 90 days are the two big ones, right? Do you have anything on, on 12 month data by chance? Have the payers given you any of that? No, I, I don't have any in front of me. Um, so unfortunately, I can't give that to you. Uh, yeah, I was just kind of curious because what's interesting is when you look at the early when you look at the early readmission rate data, there is some really good variability, and but sometimes it doesn't pan out and actually ends up evening out at the 12-month mark. And so I'm always kind of curious to see if people have made that progress. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and that is probably one of the dynamics. So from my role as the, the director of continuous improvement, I'm watching these kind of in those 90-day marks, but other individuals are looking at it from a larger systemic perspective. And so I'm sure our chief clinical officer is looking at that. I just don't have the data. But systematizing across the the providers, across the clinics, you know, this is something that we see a lot within providers is basically they hire the clinician and they just kind of allow this really eclectic approach to happen, right? Where there is no standardization. And so it's really fascinating for me to hear that you really saw significant improvement by starting to standardize that process. You know, I don't know if, if you have a perspective on that, but why why do you think that standardizing those processes across the clinics was able to improve outcomes versus just letting the clinicians kind of do what they felt their strengths were? Yeah, I think it's because we were able to identify what are the really important pieces of care. And, and so we were able to break that up into kind of five different treatment domains. Um, including safety planning, safety skills, anxiety management, depression management, and treatment engagement. And so what we had said was we were going to kind of create this around these domains, but then we're also going to repeat that information because we recognize that you, you kind of need to hear information more than once and engage in it more than once to make it meaningful. And so I think it's a, it's a combination of you know, we're, we're repeating in a systematic way, and then we're doing it again. So it helps reinforce those skill sets. Because I can think back to, you know, when I was a clinician, you know, I would look at my patient population, and I would say, oh, they're really anxious, so I'm going to do an anxiety group today. Well, then I might be missing something else, right? So if we're continuing to kind of like go in from that aspect, so we just started to look at our patient population and say, what are the skills they need? And then we built it around that. So that's exactly the question. So let's take safety planning, right, as just an example. How did you identify that? Were you looking at the research? Did you have, you know, isolated providers that were doing that or clinics that were doing? Like, how, how did you tell that safety planning was the thing that was driving positive outcomes? Oh, so I don't know that I can say safety planning was driving the positive outcomes. I think it's kind of the package. But I think what we could do is we could use empirical research and the level of care. So for this example, inpatient, so this is a locked unit where patients are typically there between four and seven days, depending on age. 
and and say what are the things that somebody who is suicidal, homicidal, has been using substances, or uh, you know is bipolar, schizophrenic, and and have deteriorated in their home. What are the things that they need from the empirical research? And so that's how we started to build around it. Got it. So it wasn't internal data where you saw one clinic doing really well and you're like, let's identify what that was. It was more, what's the empirical research that's already out there? Let's implement that across the board, see if it improves outcomes. And it did. Is that right? Exactly. And then, and then secondly, then after we set this in motion, we were able to now use that outcome system to validate if things were getting better or worse and, and also patient data, right? So what are patients telling us? So when we actually started out with this, we had a two-day curriculum. So we'd have two days of programming with the content, and then on day three, we would repeat that content. The patients really disliked that. <laughs> they didn't <laughs> find it very helpful. And so we moved to a three-day rotation, which was great because it allowed us to add a little bit more content or go deeper into specific content. And we found that to kind of be our sweet spot. So we've covered a whole lot of information here. Anything that you think that we've missed that would be really helpful for people to know in, in understanding this process? Yeah. So there was one other thing that I just did want to share because I know hospitals across, I mean, I mean, across the world. And so we were able to engage our key value streams along with our daily management system to implement telehealth platforms within a two week period of time, which is actually incredible. And so we as a system have talked a lot about if we hadn't spent the time, energy, and resources building the Rogers operating system, that we wouldn't be as successful as we are today with being able to continue to treat patients and see our mission on a daily basis through the pandemic. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, you, you can just hear, uh, you know, just listen to you, just how intense it is and how clearly like the team has come around it, right? And how much is going on in terms of what they probably learned and, and just skill sets built around rapid rapid change, I think, which is super important. Um, which uh, the one thing that I would impart is that change management needs to be at the forefront of everything we do. So we talked a lot about the, the really tangible skill sets, but there are certainly culture building or soft skills that are super critical and important to this work. And so alongside of that, we are teaching compassion resiliency, where all of our leaders go through EQ, and we teach change management. Oh, sure. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Change management is one of the hardest things. <laughs> it's just... It is, ironically, even for behavioral health. <laughs> yeah, right. I know, right? <laughs> it is very ironic. Uh, well, Sam, I really appreciate all the time and the information. If people want to get in touch with you or, or with Rogers, what would be the best way to do so? Yeah, so the best way to contact me is via email, and that's samantha.klinger, K-L-I-N-G-E-R, at rogersbh.org. You can also contact me via cell at 262-395-0266. Well, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. And to all our listeners out there, this is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Nick.